I find truly transformative is when a very senior leader, a very senior executive will come to me and just say, hey, I don't know the best way to do this, but here's how I think we want to do it. I need your help. Let's do this together. And just like let me into their thought process. Let them know that I am a trusted advisor to them and that we are facing this together as a team. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation, and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by Inveris. Before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to ask everyone to please support the show by taking a few moments to leave a review. And we've made it so much easier for you to do so. Go to lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGIL, and I'll read it on the show. Also, if you're interested in getting your hands on some OGGN laptop hard hat stickers, check out the show notes for a 60-second survey. All right, sitting here this afternoon with Liz Danette, PhD, Vice President of Data Architecture, if I can talk today. Goodness. No worries, man. (laughs) Data Engineering at Wood Mackenzie. Hi, Liz. It is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I've been waiting for this moment my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, actually. The irony is I just get to talk about myself. So that feels very self-centered when I say it. Oh, no, that's fine. This is what it's all about because it's definitely not about me. <laughs> definitely not about me. So let's, let's talk about how you got started in the industry. That's actually a, a very interesting question. I like to tell people I have, you know, your stereotypical energy industry background. I grew up in a little tiny town in Alaska and I went to graduate school, got a master's and PhD in astrobiology where I worked for NASA looking at how vo- life evolved on early earth as a proxy for life on Mars, which nowadays I think would be enough to probably get your resume not even looked at in the energy sector. But this was about a decade ago, decade plus, uh, not to age myself, But energy prices were in a different position. Energy companies (laughs) were looking for very different skills. And my curiosity and ability to ask questions is pretty much what got me my first internship. That's actually a common theme that you'll probably hear me talk about a lot is just this curiosity. So I have what I like to consider a very non-traditional background. Again, Grew up in a little town in Alaska. Kind I, of was gonna, I was going to say, okay, oh. first off, Alaska. Second of all, NASA. Like, okay, let's start with Alaska first, though. So <laughs> it's funny because my dad was a geologist, and that's what brought my family up there. And I always uh, swore I would never become a geologist. Never, ever, ever. I went to high school in Alaska, and then I went to University of Alaska Anchorage. And growing up, we were middle of nowhere. Like, no paved roads, no internet, no cable TV, And this is pre-cell phones, like the kind of place where if something broke, you couldn't just go to the store and buy a new part for your bike. I have this vivid foundational memory of something on my bike actually broke. And I was like, dad, we have to go to the bike store and get a replacement part. And he looked at me and was like, Liz, we don't have bike stores. (laughs) What are you expecting to do? That moment of self-sufficiency, like, oh, Yeah, that's right. There's not a bike store. Like, I got to MacGyver this. I got to put something together with duct tape and my resources I have. 
And that's just a core, core piece that no one will ever, ever take away from me. It actually has gotten me into some trouble. I was voted confession. (laughs) I was voted most likely to get away with anything in my high school graduating (laughs) class 20 years ago. That's amazing. Yeah. Not because I was a troublemaker, although I was definitely a punk at heart, because I wanted different and new ways to do things. I was happy to challenge the traditional paradigms if things could be done a little bit differently. That, it turns out, is a core skill set that I think, as I was reflecting back to what I wanted to say on this podcast, and if there was anything that I really wanted to pass along, that core part of who you are and what you are made up of as a leader, to me, that's part of my DNA. That's always going to be who I am. And if whatever that looks like for you as an emerging leader or a leader, if you are one, own that. Make that part of who you are. Because if you are unabashedly true to what represents your DNA, then if you're ever confused or in a time of conflict, you can fall back on that as your North Star. And mine just happens to be a little bit chaotic at heart at times. So we could just basically pick you up, drop you off anywhere, and you would survive. I hope so. Although I fear that living living in big cities has probably muted that a little bit. Mm, but mm-hmm. only one way to find out. Challenge accepted. <laughs> I'll be there later. <laughs> <laughs> when an unmarked van pulls up and I, I'll just go with it. I won't even fight back. <laughs> be like, okay, I signed up for this. I consented on that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so you definitely did not want to be a geologist like your dad. And so NAS? Ironically enough, sorry to cut you off there, my first full-time job ever was as a geologist with Hess Corporation. So (laughs) take that, dad. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like somewhere in there, you can fight genetics so hard. Yeah. So I was minding my own business. I was pre-law and then I was pre-med. I took a rocks for jocks class at Alaska Anchorage, as one does, you know, get a science class out of the way, even though I'd always done math and science, but I never thought I was good at it. Now, what I would call crippling imposter syndrome, I didn't have the vernacular back then. (laughs) So turns out when you're a sophomore and take AP calculus and like get a four at it, when you're a sophomore in high school, you're good at math. 13, 14-year-old Liz just thought I got lucky. Anyway, long story less long, I took rocks for jocks because it was the easiest science class, and I wasn't sure that I was a scientist at heart, and I fell in love with it. It was a logical system to explain so many things. The chemistry I'd taken, geochemistry is an applied version. You can learn about isotopes, and you can learn about wastewater and all kinds of really pragmatic processes that can tell you a story about the earth. And the applied nature of it just absolutely got to me. And so I figured I would, you know, go to law school, but have a degree in geology. And that's so random. (laughs) It really, really was. And ultimately, I stumbled upon this thing called astrobiology. It, It happened. I was an RA in the dorms. And I was working. I really needed money for college. I had some student loans I took out. And I was very determined to pay for it all myself. And so I was working extra shifts during Christmas break between, I think it was my sophomore and junior year, and you work the front desk of the dorms. So you have to be there from like midnight to 4 a.m. It's a brutal time. There's no one there. You just sit there and try to entertain yourself. And And, and try not to doze off. Yeah, try not to doze off. I didn't want to just watch movies. And so I went to the library and rented a whole bunch of books. Ones I'd read, new books. And one of the ones that left a life-altering impression on me. I'd read before, but there was something about rereading it, and that was Contact by Carl Sagan. And this idea that we as humans have a set frame of mind, there could be 
other things out there. This whole question about life in the universe just spoke to me at a cellular level. I'm still getting goosebumps talking about it right now. (laughs) And so I decided to cold email all the schools that had PhD programs in astrobiology and tell them that my name's Liz. I'll work my butt off if you give me a chance. And I'm really interested in this stuff. That's really cool. And I ended up choosing Wisconsin-Madison, and I went ahead and got a master's and PhD there, had an incredible time. I researched circumneutral pH, microbial iron cycling in terrestrial iron environment, terrestrial environments, a lot of geomicrobiology, as one does. And I uh, was planning on doing a postdoc at JPL, had a lot of things lined up. And then the energy companies came and did interviews as they had done at our school. Again, this is a very, very different time. And I threw my hat in the ring and had some offers. I ended up interning with Hess and had an incredible set of mentors, an incredible experience, and took a full-time offer after my PhD. So what are some challenges you had to go through to get through that? I mean, obviously, other than being, you know, indecisive on what you wanted to do. (laughs) Right? Well, I mean, you know, that's the time you're trying to figure out what you want to do anyway. This is like I tell my kids, I'm like, your 20s, that's your time to figure out what you want to do. And you're still not going to know, even into your 30s sometimes. So absolutely, figure it out. That's your job. My parents actually always said to spend your late 20s the exact opposite of where you grew up. And so I remember vividly, too, landing in Houston, sitting in the office, looking at all the office buildings in downtown, being like, oh, offices are the new mountains. And it is 120 degrees with the heat index. This is exactly what they meant. Okay. Okay. And all the cement just absorbing all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it smells like ketchup outside downtown when the heat hits it. I never got that smell when I was down there. I always got the (laughs) lovely sewer smell because I would walk to the the buses. Oh, yep. Yep. And so to me, I really approached it kind of as, I guess, a cultural ambassador in a way. Like, I never thought I would end up in here in the energy business working on actual problems and solutions that impacted things. My whole life, I dreamed of working in a fancy corporate office building and actually having a job that makes a difference. And so the whole journey to me was just so, so, so surreal. And I really was like a kid in the candy store. After the internship and then working for Hess for a few years, I started to to understand what fulfilled me, what made me feel like I could uniquely add a difference there, and really where my skill set landed. And so that's my origin story in, you know, 15 (laughs) minutes. That's the the abridged version. (laughs) All right. Well, so let's talk about what you do at Wood McKenzie and what data architecture and data engineering is. It's funny you bring up your kids because this is a job where when I was in high school, didn't exist. Right. And even when I was in college, didn't really exist the way it does now. And even finishing my PhD, I could not have stepped into this because the proliferation of cloud infrastructure, the availability of different programming languages in a way that's readily accessible and having talent pipelines so that we can quickly grow teams. Those have not been the conditions that have enabled this up until, you know, just a few years back. So it's crazy that I've really stumbled into a job that fuels me, fulfills me, and where I feel like I can add value. And it didn't exist, you know, just a few years ago. I know. That's why I don't know what it is. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I I have an idea, but, you know, it's probably better to explain to the audience. 
<laughs> Honestly, sometimes when I am, you know, very, very deep in meetings about these nuanced technical issues and describing like TTL problems or caching strategies or how we're going to build out these nuanced architectural decisions, I sometimes scratch my head and I'm like, how did I get here? How am I so lucky? So at a high level, data architecture and data engineering, what we do is we break down data silos so that different types of energy data can talk to other types of energy data so that you as an end customer have an integrated approach then your data is governed, it has good quality checks on it, you can trust it, you don't have to spend a lot of time using it. What that looks like under the surface is deciding how the data flows. Do we store it in relational databases or non-relational databases? How are we going to use data models or other data governance frameworks? How do we engage with different engineering teams to build pipelines or build front-end applications? How do we leverage our UI UX team so that an end customer gets a really good experience and can take that data and make insightful actions with it? So it's really a way to make sure we can give the data the presence and really bring it to end customers and internal customers in a way that's joined up and they can use it. It's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief at OGGN, and the energy industry faces challenges every day. And the events of the last two years have caused disruptions like never before. Companies in the energy industry need actionable intelligence and a single source of truth that brings all the data together. And Everest is the energy specialized technology partner that provides intelligent connections for the global energy ecosystem. Only Everest has the analytics, people, experience, and industry scope to connect the right data and information in the right way to discover missed opportunities and deliver fast outcomes. Find out more at Everest.com. That's E-N-V-E-R-U-S.com. Yeah, yeah. What I love about that is I think one of the problems I had when I worked for an operator was, can I trust this data after this acquisition? Absolutely. Or if you were like me in grad school, can I trust this data that I put in this Excel spreadsheet six months ago? Right, right. And the fact that it talks to other departments like, you know, land information versus, you know, regulatory information, for example, you know, sometimes things don't mesh up, you know, maybe it's the wrong, you know, perfs here and, you know, it's just so many different things and so many different hands in the bucket per se. Yeah. And there's, so energy data is uniquely complex and I will talk about this forever. Please cut me off if I go too long. I will try <laughs> to be abridged here. If you've ever seen me at a conference, I'll get on a soapbox and just go. But the thing about energy data that a lot of data professionals don't really understand is that it is this unique, unique monstrosity. And I say monstrosity with so much love. First off, these are primary measurements. We are talking about unknowable unknowns from the subsurface. When we are collecting MWD, for instance, that in many cases is an estimation of what we're drilling. And when we make these holes in the surface, we are never going to make that hole again. So we have a one-time shot at it. The third thing is there's a lot of approximation with this data. Even if you're drilling a long lateral, there's always going to be a cone of uncertainty around it, or there's always going to be some kind of estimation. Also, this data is huge, both in size, we definitely have big data at play, but also in terms of X, Y, and Z coordinates. We're spanning the entire planet, not just on the surface, but below the surface right. at a scale that if you're not in the energy industry... And I tell someone, oh, yeah, that well, you know, probably goes 10,000 feet down, 10,000 feet across. They have no context for that. And the third thing that's a real noggin scratcher 
is the fact that we're dealing with 50 to 100 years of different vintage data. So I'm talking about the dusty old well logs that most people listening have had to dust off and look at to see, for your example there, are the perfs in the place they are in Petrel? We're talking about data sets that are real-time. We're talking about WITSML feeds. We're talking about digitally native data sets and also things that are so antiquated and analog that the signal-to-noise ratio could forever be lost. And those aren't bugs. Those are features of our data. And if we try to sweep them under the rug and pretend that we are dealing with the same data paradigms that Spotify, for instance, would be using with their songs or that Project Gutenberg would be using to put optical character recognition on, we are going to be in a losing proposition. We need to really embrace this messy, sloppy monstrosity of data for what it is because it really makes what we're doing an incredibly difficult yet incredibly rewarding challenge. Right, right. Yeah, and sloppy is very accurate. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, let's get into leadership. So you're the vice president. So what is leadership to you? I don't think I've ever been asked that question. I can tell you about my management style. I can tell you about the things I know the harbingers I look for in my team when we're having a good day or we're having a good dynamic. I can tell you about the role of culture in a team. But leadership itself, I guess to me it means asking tough questions, knowing when you're not sure and seeking counsel and listening to that counsel. Although now that I say that out loud, I'm pretty sure I borrowed that from Game of Thrones. I don't know if that's maybe where I should be getting my leadership quotes from, but I think it's very apt. I think that as I've progressed through my career, and there's been periods of very rapid growth and rapid responsibility, and there's been times I've been able just to be a very deep individual contributor, I've realized a few things. And one of them is that I will never have the bandwidth to know everything about everything. So Knowing where I have to say, you know what? I'm not sure. Let me check with my team or let me check with the team. Let me ask the people who do have their finger on the pulse about this and talk to the individuals whose lives these decisions are going to impact and I'll get back to you. I think to me, that's the core of what being a leader is, is it's not pretending to know the answer when you don't. It's not having false confidence, but it's really being humble and trying to figure out how we can all come up with solutions that help the people that are going to be impacted. Yeah, because basically you just represent the team, right? Yeah, and team can be defined on so many levels. It can be defined as the people that work for you, the people that work with you, your end customers. With a lot of these energy transition problems, the team in a much broader sense can be the citizens of the planet because a lot of the choices that we're making impact everyone. That's true. That's very true. I haven't thought about it that way. Do you have an example of a time in which it was very, you were in a difficult position as a leader? Oh, I have so, so, so many. And for me, the majority of these come from either A, not having all of the data necessary to make a decision. I'm a scientist, you guys. I, like many engineers, like to know all of my data. I like to have all of the edge cases taken into account and, you know, be able to say like to a 99th percentile, this is what we want to do. And in absence of that, if you don't have all the data, you can sometimes like war game it out, figure out what might happen. 
But to me, the most difficult parts of being a leader are when there are unintended consequences or when you are making a decision that will impact someone either positively or negatively, and you can't quite articulate that. I don't mind making tough calls. I don't mind letting people go if a team is not a good fit or they have something else in their life. But if it's something unexpected or you just, you can't quite figure out how to come up with a proxy for that variable and it catches you off guard. That's where I tend to find some of the hardest pieces. The thing that does keep me up at night though, just to be very transparent and honest, is team culture. I've been in teams that have had to grow very rapidly. When I started at Woodmac, we didn't have a data architecture organization. So I got the chance and that's actually what drew me over. I was at Amazon at AWS before this, working on their energy data platforms, which was, I was a kid in a candy store. It was the coolest, coolest role. I still (laughs) talk to many of the people I worked with. It was just mind-blowing and incredible. And so much of how I define leadership, I learned from the leaders I worked with there. There's a whole, whole host of just fantastic, fantastic individuals. Mm -hmm. And even their leadership principles that are top-down, this is what we expect from you, That's also core pieces of my DNA, just like I was talking about earlier with being a little bit chaotic. But the thing that keeps me up at night as a leader is when you grow organizations very quickly and when you have periods of rapid transition, you need to maintain the culture and you need to make sure that we're doing what's best for the team and for the company and for our customers. So making sure that we can simultaneously balance those three while ensuring that people are still showing up to work and they're having fun and they're feeling fulfilled and challenged and able to really see themselves progressing and becoming the best version of themselves professionally, balancing those things is what I lose sleep over, to be very transparent. Very good. So what's something that's really important that you've learned from another leader that still sticks with you? You've kind of brought up a few, but just kind of glossed over them. Humility. Admitting when you're new to a role when you don't know the answers. I had many, many fantastic leaders at AWS. Specifically, I'm thinking about Kim and Scott and a lot of my team within the Energy IBU. But we were facing a lot of, we were trying to do things with OSD and with energy data platforms in a way that I had never done them. And there were times just as a whole where there's not really a playbook for this. And the thing that I find truly transformative is when a very senior leader, a very senior executive will come to me and just say, hey, I don't know the best way to do this, but here's how I think we want to do it. I need your help. Let's do this together. And just like, let me into their thought process. Let them know that I am a trusted advisor to them and that we are facing this together as a team. That's something that I strive to do. I try to be very humble and very transparent. I'm horrible at keeping secrets, so it actually works very well with my personality type. (laughs) Okay, so you don't tell me anything and I don't tell you anything. Right on. (laughs) (laughs) But that idea, I've also seen bad leadership examples where one person comes up very much, here's the plan, this is what we're doing. I know, I'm in charge, I have it figured out. And for me, that sometimes rings false because I'm like, great, what if you do? But also... How am I supposed to learn from you if you have all the answers? I want to contribute. I want to be part of it. I want to see the journey and mature. And so that's a best practice that I've seen be really transformational to myself and my own growth and something that I try to emulate as much as I can. Yeah, those power trips really make me cringe. Yeah, because I'm also 
when I think about career development, and every single person on my team has a career development plan, we do things like 10% of their time for professional development because those are very important to me, especially with technical teams, so that we can keep the sword sharp or the saw sharpened, whichever your preferred <laughs> thing there is. I like the sword. I play a lot of D&D, so it fits. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever that is, though, knowing that the interpersonal pieces and the cultural and political pieces are in many ways much more impactful and much harder to learn than the technical, you can't go to Stack Overflow and look up how do I deal with this nuanced work situation? How do I balance two or three competing interests? <laughs> trust me, there's not a Stack Overflow. I've checked. <laughs> you have Googled it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of the secret about being in tech. If you can't figure it out, you start with some very good Googling. Well, I mean, I just think that's perfect for any office setting. I mean, it's like, okay, how do I do this formula in you know, Excel? How do I skip from this to that? You know, that's how I've survived, you know, but you just got to figure it out as you go along. That actually reminds me of some amazing career advice I got fresh out of my PhD. And oh. full disclosure, when I first started, I was a freshly minted scientist who was pretty sure that I had the answers to everything regarding circumventral pH iron cycling. And I had definitely a lot of rough edges to work out. My interpersonal skills are the result of just some fantastic, fantastic mentors they're nothing that I just lucked into. And one of those mentors, Lori Green, one of my very first jobs, we had a one-on-one -on -one and she told me something along the lines of, Liz, the technical skills will always be really easy and straightforward, but it's the political and the interpersonal skills that I want to see you put on your career development plan and I want you to work on. And at the time, I think I said something like, wait, are you telling me I need to learn how to play nice with others? Which, <laughs> which in hindsight, I absolutely did. You come out of grad school with no concept of how to really be a great team player in a corporate setting. And my parents, I love them both, but neither of them worked in these corporate environments. So I didn't have the same kind of mentors that growing up that some of my colleagues did. Interesting. And Oh, and it was really transformational because looking back, the mistakes I don't even know if I, nope, I would call them mistakes. The mistakes and missteps I made the first three or four years of my career were massive. And having the space to reflect on them and learn things like being really reactive or wanting to solve every single problem when someone- Or taking something personally. Oh, absolutely. There's a great quote about take feedback seriously. I think it's take feedback seriously, but not personally. I think that's from Hillary Clinton, although I could be wrong on that. But really figuring out what your end goal is has been something I've worked towards. But man, right out of grad school, if there was a problem to be solved, even if it didn't concern me even a little bit, I would solve it. And I would tell everyone why my solution was the best solution. I would have the data to back it up. I would have the statistical analyses and the p-values. And it turns out that being right is not the end goal a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'd if you're listening to this and we work together, thank you for bearing with me and being a key person in my leadership journey a decade ago. <laughs> okay. So that brings me to my next question. If you have a piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? And like I said earlier, while we were talking before is, you know, these are different people. They're all the way from CEOs to people that aren't even in the industry to people coming into the industry. So 
So I have kind of three tenets that make up my overall life philosophy that, disclaimer, these are worth what you're paying for them, which is nothing. And your (laughs) mileage may vary. So take it or leave it. You can write me on LinkedIn (laughs) if you're like, these are the worst pieces of advice I've ever heard. (laughs) So my general life philosophy comes down to three things. The first one is just work hard because hard work is free. It's something you can control and just roll up your sleeves and work really, really hard. The second thing I summarize it as shake what your mama gave you, but also (laughs) to my point earlier about figuring out what's in your DNA, what that North Star is. What are the things that are uniquely specific to you? What aligns with both your values and where you can uniquely add value? Like, who are you and what are you inherently good at? Know what those are, write a list if you have to, but spend some time looking inward so that you can quantify those. And that will give you the buoyancy that you need, which can really help to deflect imposter syndrome, that can help you not take things personally, to your point earlier. And when you fail epically, which I have fallen epically so, so, so many times, it's the buoyancy to bounce back up and be like, you know what? I can do this. These are my superpowers. Here's what I can do. And then the third thing is trust your gut. Like trust that intuition. If there is an opportunity coming your way or if you hear about something and it's percolating away in the back of your mind, whether it's a new way to do something or maybe you thought about someone who might be willing to take on a project or join your team or a collaboration, it's sparkling in the back of your brain and it won't go away. Listen to those whispers. That said, make space in your day to listen to them. Go for walks, walk on your treadmill, ride bikes, do whatever it takes. But make sure that you can recognize when your intuition is whispering to you. And that's a really great point because, I mean, humans are the only mammals that go, "Mm, nah, I'm not going to trust that. I'm going to do what I want. And it's such a disappointment (laughs) when people don't listen to their guts. And I definitely have ingrained that in my children, especially my daughter, because, you know, it's kind of a chick thing, you know, more so. But I think it's applicable across the human race, you know? Yeah. And a lot of times just make the space to hear it out. It could be a disastrous idea, but I love just to go through the mental exercises and be like, okay, what if I did? What if I did this? What if I didn't do this? And just entertain it. Because even if it's a horrible idea, first off, you're going to get a great little mental exercise, some mental gymnastics when you work through it, (laughs) which is always fun. (laughs) Maybe you're walking to, you're laughing to yourself when you go for your walk, thinking things out. But two, I really think there can be some magic when you just take your foot off the accelerator and let ideas combine. Whether it's in my world, a lot of times it's a novel way to solve an architecture problem. It can be coming up with a different way to host our APIs. It could be coming up with a different caching strategy, stuff like that. Yeah. But sometimes it's much more fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of fun, you got any favorite books or any single one that's maybe influenced you? I mentioned Contact by Carl Sagan. That and Jurassic Park were the two when I read them. I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, wow. This is a whole set of science fiction that I hadn't <laughs> thought about. I read a ton of science fiction. So, so, so much. I'm not going to come here with some wonderful, like, crisp business book and tell you that it impacted me because the reality is the majority of the books that have left a lasting impression on me have been sci-fi books. 
And the reason for that is that when you're creating a world, when you're creating new languages, new monetary systems, new ways for technology to work, again, to my point earlier about mental gymnastics, I find that you can frequently leverage the author's ideas and really loosen up on the constraints of the real world and be inspired to try things completely, completely differently, whether it's a way to spin up POCs or whether it's a way to deploy chaos engineering into your systems or to even just look at energy systems and think about ways that data could talk to one another. So there's a whole heap of science fiction books that would make the cut. Opens your brain up for more things. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I like that. I'm sure there's neuroplasticity in there somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What's your most used business tool? Used business tool. Plain, unlined, white notebook and an erasable pen. Oh, nice. I just use a pencil. I'm using a pencil right here to take notes. Oh, so I got these erasable pens. I've tried a bunch. Yeah, because some of them aren't good. They just carry your paper. No, these I actually got, I started using them when I was playing D&D with some friends. So every time you had to change your character sheet, you could erase them. And the friction, the ball friction clickers are clickable, have a good eraser, and they have a nice solid line. I love online notebooks too. My notes will go here and there and everywhere. I also typically start my weeks making the, I think it's called an Eisenhower matrix, where it's urgent versus non-urgent and important versus non-important. So I can just triage every single thing I have to do and really try to spend as much of my free time as I can in that not urgent but important box. Things like, what's the broad roadmap? How will you respond to X, Y, or Z? How will we think through this or that? And that can be really helpful to make sure that with free time, I'm not just called into putting out fires, but can really be strategic about some of the key business priorities. Yeah, I would have structured it on fire, not on fire. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually really funny. I was getting dinner with a friend who teaches at a school. She teaches STEM and robotics and has this awesome, awesome life. And we were talking about work. And I hadn't seen her in a long time. And she made a comment like, oh, what are you up to these days? And I was like, oh, for work, I am in meetings eight <laughs> to 10 hours a day. And I make a lot of PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> and she's like, oh, well, I teach STEM and robotics and coding. And it's so cool. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm a STEM success story. Like if your <laughs> students do really well, they too can be in meetings for eight to 10 hours a day. <laughs> she was like, you're going to have to unpack that one for me, Liz. I don't understand. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, and to me, I say that when people ask what I do. I say, oh, I'm, I'm in meetings all day. I say that half in jest because one of the biggest career forks for technologists and people in technology is, do you stay the individual contributor route or do you go into management? I say management specifically because Every single person on my team is a leader. The individual contributors are leader. People that are interns are leaders. Every single person is leading some piece of it, even if it's a cultural piece versus a big project. So we're all, all leaders. But in terms of going into the management track and going through my career trajectory to become a VP, to me, what has led me on this trajectory is I've always known I could be a decent architect. I love designing systems. I do appreciate being an individual contributor, but my superpower is really being a force multiplier. 
and being able to set a vision, get people excited about it, figuring out the best and most effective and efficient way to do things, tying this back to those comments at the top of the podcast about being a little bit of a troublemaker and fixing my bike. (laughs) And so I guess another piece of advice too, if you're mentoring anyone who's thinking about how to have an impact and how they want to really leave a legacy, think about the core skills that help them really exist and really make that mark. Are they a force multiplier? Or we have some fantastic architects here who can roll up their sleeves and in two hours become experts at any single system. Right Both of those are tremendously valuable. Many days, I would argue that people that can roll up their sleeves and actually learn the technology are more valuable than my role, but I digress. (laughs) And so I think that's an important distinction, though, that I hadn't really heard in my career. It had always been, oh, you know, the management track, the VP track, that's what quote-unquote success is. That's the success story in STEM. But I think, especially in the past four or five years, as tech companies and oil and gas companies have moved closer together. There's been a lot more space for diversity of career trajectories. And I think there's an incredible web of opportunities as people think through how they want to leave their mark on the industry. Very good. Speaking of other companies, who's your most respected competitor? Anyone that is doing things with energy data as a whole, given the complexity that I talked about earlier. Right. I respect everyone in the space. There are so many people doing incredible things, both at the enterprise level, but also there's a sea of amazing startups out there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's a slog. The data is messy. And it's the kind of game to, to impact the energy transition, to impact making smart decisions, where the more people looking at data and the more ways we can advance the technology, my personal opinion is that the more people here, the more it's going to force us all to just advance the technology. Yep. Yep. That makes sense to me. So why is your role now important to the future of the industry? In order to really transform how we power the planet, we can't have data in silos. I mean, we can, but it's only going to get us so far. Yeah. We really need to match up integrated things like weather forecasts, for instance, with grid forecasts, with satellite analytics so that all the data can talk to one another so that instead of having piecemeal approaches, we can look at the system, the complex system that is Earth as a whole. And creating the systems and the infrastructure so that the data can be combined, we're making sure that it's the right company, it's the right location. That's the very core of what data architecture and engineering is. Very good. Do you have a favorite podcast? I am going to very selfishly say my podcast. (laughs) As expected. That's what I would say. (laughs) So I have the absolute honor of hosting the Woodmac Horizons podcast. It's a candid take on the energy industry. It's actually one of the coolest things I do. So every month, Woodmac comes out with the Horizon report, and it can be about any topic. There's been one on energy super basins. There was one on plastics. We just did one on steel. And I get to talk to our experts on this topic and an industry expert on this topic. Oh, that's cool. It's so cool. And the best part is I get to play the role of the viewer and be like, can you tell me exactly how steel is made? And really, it's just me. I'm super curious and want to learn these things. That's the type of stuff I watch at night. I watch uh, How Is It Made, you know, all those types of shows. I love stuff like that. Oh, it is so cool. So, For instance, on the one on plastics, I asked if cutting up plastic six-pack holders really has an impact on saving sea turtles. Does it? 
You'll have to listen and find out. Oh. <laughs> Touche, ma'am. Touche. On the steel one, I was just blown away, though. The steel one we just came out last month because as humans, we perfected steel manufacturing over 100 years ago. Like when I'm in a skyscraper, I can take great pride in the fact that our steel is solid. But steel produces so much CO2. So we've had to completely rethink through how we create steel, green steel, to cut down on those CO2 emissions. Something that I hadn't even thought that as humans, we'd peaked in our steel manufacturing, and yet now we have to really come up with new ways of doing it. Right, right. Any other podcasts? We were talking earlier about food, and now I'm hungry. (laughs) Now we're both hungry. I know. (laughs) Earlier, before we pressed record, we were going on and on about food and made the joke. We don't have video here, but I'm from Alaska, and my spice, my heat tolerance is that of someone that was raised in rural Alaska, (laughs) which is non-existent. (laughs) A big treat growing up would be to go to Taco Bell and get the mild sauce because that's my upper heat tolerance limit. So the- I had a burrito yesterday. So, yeah, yeah. I use the fire sauce and I get jalapenos, oh, which I've just become acclimated to. Oh, man. See, the joke that we were making before we hit record is that we couldn't even listen to the same podcast because your podcast about food would be too spicy for me to even listen to, which I think is true. It probably is. It probably is. Oh, man. Oh, that's great. Well, if people want to reach out to you, Liz, and or get to know more about Wood McKenzie, how can they go about doing so? You can connect with me directly on LinkedIn at Liz Dennett, or you can check out Wood McKenzie. And if you go to the homepage, there'll be a link for Horizons or a link for our podcast, and you will see the Horizons podcast. Awesome. And I'll also put that in our show notes so people don't have to go too far to find that. (laughs) That's easy. (laughs) Convenience. All right. Well, so that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.